Silence of God, Meditations on Prayer, Second Meditation, Section 4 of the Reading. What we can properly ask of God. There's a difficulty in my first meditation on the silence of God I know that I haven't faced. Even if it is agreed that all around that we cannot speak for God, even if we all see clearly that to know God is to be God, It still happens that I'm speaking a good deal about God in these meditations. How do I know enough about God even to say that God is silent? Is it enough to argue that just because we hear nothing from God, there is a God who is saying nothing? This seems analogous to concluding that because we hear nothing on the other side of the closed door, there's not someone waiting for us to knock. Theologians have customary ways of resolving this difficulty, They say that faith precedes knowledge. It is one thing to know God is there in the silence. It's another to have faith that God is there. Virtually all the church's greatest thinkers have adopted a principle that first appears in the writing of St. Augustine, understanding follows faith. We do not believe that we're already able to understand, but attempt to understand that in which we have faith. The fact that knowledge or understanding does not come before faith, means inevitably that faith entails risk. The risk entailed in faith is of a very special sort. It involves no calculation. Faith is not the activity of determining the degree of likelihood that God is is there. As though one might decide the chances are better than 50-50 and then believing it if it seems prudent. The emphasis in faith is on the willingness to risk not on the chances of losing your wager. Most matters in the realm of spirit are paradoxical in this regard. In worldly affairs where we calculate our risks, relying on paradox would bring us to certain ruin. We might invest money in a long-shot business venture if it also offers the possibility of a very high payoff. We might be ruined by doing so, but there's a certain amount of reason for taking such an action. It seems like a smart gamble, but there's no gambling in the spirit. One does not risk oneself spiritually in the hope of a profitable outcome. The risk is itself the outcome. And this is the paradox. If you want to save your life, you must first lose it. The issue in faith is not, then, whether there is anyone beyond the door, but whether we can drop everything to knock on it. The door will most certainly open, but only to that person who risks everything without the least concern for gain. The most perfect biblical image of faith is that of Abraham, proceeding directly to the sacrifice of his son, though he was about to destroy something far more valuable to him than his own life. No wonder Abraham is known ever after as the father of faith. The relation of prayer to faith is vividly captured in a short scene in the Gospel of Mark. A father has brought his epileptic son to Jesus, begging Jesus to have pity on us and to help us. Jesus replied by a declaration of the paradox, all things are possible to him who believes. The father's remarkable response was to cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. The crucial term here is not belief, but help. What confirms the authenticity of the father's faith is not that he first believed and then asked, but that he asked directly from his heart. The reference to his unbelief seems to suggest that 
He may not even have believed that Jesus was able to do what he asked. If he had calculated the chances of getting the boy cured of his terrible affliction, he may have found that they were not all that good. In fact, the father had already pled with Jesus' disciples to heal his son, and they had tried but failed. Now, coming to Jesus himself, the father disregards the odds and asks for everything, as though his very life depended on it. Later, the disciples asked Jesus why they had not been able to heal the boy. He said simply that this kind of illness cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. These, uh, these are some of the countless examples in Christian history of persons whose lives are dramatized by their willingness to risk everything. Certainly among the most colorful are among the uh, early Irish monks who would go so far as to put out to sea in small crafts, merely to drift wherever the tides and the winds would take them. They considered themselves peregrini, pilgrims or wanderers. They were giving outward form to the spiritual act of placing themselves at God's mercy. Far from any landfall without chart or rudder, they were left with nothing but the cry of the epileptic's father, help. Of course, if their intention had been to isolate themselves physically in a way that would have given the cry of help authenticity, they would have been frauds. Their wandering was spiritually genuine only if it reflected the recognition that in their human condition they were already at sea and without any resources to save themselves. All of this illustrates the theological point that faith is greater than knowledge and that we do not need to know if anyone is beyond the door before we set down all that we carry, all our burdens and treasures and knock on it. To be sure, by insisting on this, Theologians make, theology a ten, uh, theologians make theology a tentative enterprise. It's a kind of knowledge that knows it cannot count. I'm repeating the observation made in the introduction that theology is a joyful discourse among persons who have rushed the door or put to sea in their diminutive vessels. Theology succeeds when it fails. That is, when the theologian's journey is not so successful that it eliminates the need for your own but so suggestive that it invites you to set forth on your own. In this very same way, speaking of God in these meditations is a tentative speaking, a non-knowing knowing, an attempt to listen, to speak and to listen again. The matter that now asks for comment is the rush to the door, the initial cry of the heart into the enormous silence a cry that precedes all other wants and passions. The question is, what can we ask of God that we can ask only of God? In the introduction to this book, I indicated that the word praying has virtually the same meaning as begging, probably its closest synonym. To understand prayer as begging, it may be helpful to contrast it with desiring sometimes confused with praying because they since are both forms of asking for something. It's one thing to beg and quite another to desire. The father of the epileptic did not desire to have his son healed. He begged for healing. The most elemental difference between begging and desiring is that in begging, we ask for what we cannot live without, but have no resources of our own to obtain.
We do not beg unless our lives are in jeopardy. At bottom, then all begging is a begging for life. Desire, on the other hand, is focused on an object one can quite well live without, even if it causes acute dissatisfaction. I do not desire to exist, but to exist in some other time and place, perhaps even as another person. Therefore, what I desire, I cannot beg for, because my existence is not at stake. If prayer is to be understood as begging and not merely desiring, it may seem that we are only rarely in a circumstance where prayer is appropriate. It does seem that there are very few moments in a well-organized life when we're brought to the extreme of having to beg for our existence. I've emphasized the phrase a well-organized life to draw attention to the deep habit of looking ahead in life, heading off the disasters that reduce us to begging. For myself, I have the example of the Irish monks, those holy wanderers, charming and a bit exotic, but they are an example that I hesitate to follow. Frankly, I'm a habitual chart man. I trust as little as possible to the tides and the winds. But in doing so, I deceive myself. Being preoccupied with charts is a way of forgetting that I am a frail craft indeed, and by no means a master over the histories through which I am trying to navigate. If we look behind this common deception, we find that begging is not an occasional necessity and a misfortune. It is at the very essence of what it means to be human. The truth is we can have nothing we do not ask for. Now I know this observation seems overstated and in fact seems false on the face of it. If I have something, obviously no longer, I no longer have to ask for it. And if I'm asking for something, it's clear enough that I do not yet have it. And in one very important matter, I must say that the life I have, I did not ask for. After all, who asked to be born? But I mean the statement to be taken literally in both cases. I can have material possessions only by continuing to beg for them, and I cannot be born without asking to be born. Consider first the question of material possessions. It's true in a formal sense that I cannot ask for what I already have, but on the other hand I must ask to keep what I already have, that is to continue having it. I can continue to have only what others permit me to have. In this sense my possessions are mine only to the degree that others agree to my ownership. It is true that I can lock our apartment in the city and go away for weeks at a time, certain that nothing will be missing when we return, and that this fact encourages us to believe that our possessions are indisputably ours and, and depend on no one's agreement. However, the powerful lock on the front door was installed by an expert on whose skill we must depend. There is a security system in our building and a doorman whose responsibility it is to see that no one enters our apartments and steals anything. In our daily comings and goings in the city, we depend on many others. We cannot walk the streets or drive an automobile or make a purchase or express political opinions except where others suffer us to do so. Even money itself, often thought to be an irresistible form of power, is only paper or metal and becomes money only when persons agree to use it as such. When we offer money to others for their property or labor, 
we receive in return not what the money forces them to do, but what they offer in exchange. That is, we must beg them to accept our money in exchange for something of theirs. The point here is that there can be no such thing as material possessions without a subtle and complicated network of societal agreements. We must all consent to an enormous number of social practices before any of us can have anything at all. What is most important here is that, unless there's a collective will to sustain these agreements, we are individually helpless. I cannot independently decide to have the kind of society that I want, but I must live in that which has already been shaped by a collective will. This is not to say that, except in rare instances, I can have no influence over my social environment, but those influences inevitably take form of a plea that my own needs to be my own needs be respected. I must beg to be listened to. To be able to have anything that I can call my own, therefore, I must live in my society as a suppliant. All social bond invo involves a form of prayer. If it's true that we ha can have nothing that we do not ask for, it is also true that no one can give us what we do not ask for. No matter how much I might desire to give you money or some other property, if you do not accept it from me, I'm powerless to make you do so. I make this point to emphasize the thorough reciprocity of our social relations. In this connection, we can also see quite clearly how the interdependence includes non-material as well as material exchanges. I cannot be human at all unless I am listened to, unless others respond to me out of their own spontaneity. I cannot demand that someone love me or despise me, and what is more, if I do not want your love or your admiration or even your anger, there's simply no way you could give them to me. You might, of course, feel them, perhaps acutely, but insofar as they remain only feelings, they're not genuine personal exchanges. You've given me nothing, and how deeply frustrating and dissatisfying it is to express your affection or your rage at someone who does not respond to it. At any such moment, we can see how much we depend on others asking for our expressions. We cannot have what we do not beg for, and we cannot be given what we do not beg for. So far, I've discussed this principle in terms of material and non-material possessions, but earlier I stressed that begging is at the bottom of a begging for life. Can we say that we cannot have life or even be given life without begging for it? And this is the point at which we must contend with the truisms that we did not ask to be born. In one sense, but in a very limited sense, it is true that we do not initiate the physiological process that results in our material existence. But then it's also true that while we cannot be the persons we are without our bodies, we are not the persons we are as those physical entities. The term reproduction is quite misleading here, since it implies that parents produce children, duplicating precisely the means by which they were produced. This suggests, as, this suggests that as persons, we are the outcome or the result of an, autonomous, an automatic process extending back indefinitely into the past. According to this way of thinking, we are who we are quite independently of the persons around us. A literary critic once said of the characters of Dickens that they were so completely conceived by him before he located them in his stories that they were incapable of inner growth or development. They did not speak with each other, he said, 
so much as collide with each other without ever altering the patterns of words and actions as their author assigned them. The critic did not have to add that Dickens should have known better. None of us springs as finished persons from the author's imagination. The language we speak is not scripted uh, and in advance, but must be learned from those who were speaking uh, long before we were ever conceived. Recall the earlier point that it is simply nonsensical to say that we have language all by ourselves, for that would mean it would be it would be possible to speak with ourselves, which we could no more do than steal from the left hand what we hold in the right. So too with all our social involvements. We were not born brave or funny or melancholy. Each of these terms describes the way we interact with others and makers and makes no sense when applied to one in isolation. I cannot be brave all by myself. In other words, everything that constitute, constitutes us as persons can be found only in active and reciprocal social relations. Unless others reach out to me, unless others listen, I cannot be a person. And at the same time, I must also reach out to others. I must also be a listener myself. I cannot be a person unless the possibility is offered me by others. But those others are powerless to make me a person. I must ask for what they offer, and I must beg them to listen. It is true of even the smallest infant that our love for it is utterly without effect, unless it asks to have that love of us. And that is why parenting is so enormously difficult. We are often prepared to give a great many things to a child before the child has asked for them. And what the child truly asks for, we may not hear or be able to give in response. The great difference between parents and children is not that the parents have so much more to give, but that ch children have so much more to ask for. Childhood is a time of great dependence, and that is to say need, and therefore a time of begging from others. There's no more complete hunger than that of the newborn. They're asking not only for a material sustenance, which they cannot obtain on their own, but they're asking for a great many forms of human touching of the very most fundamental and unconditional sort. Childhood is a state of the purest hunger for life. It's a state of being that can be comprehended as uninterrupted prayer. As children mature towards adulthood, the greatest changes that they undergo are not the possessions of more and more, but the inclination to ask for less and less. The very definition of adulthood is one of self-sufficiency. It is a time of life in which we are expected to provide our own sustenance and come to our own political and moral decisions and choose the future course of our own lives, all with the least possible amount of instruction or support from others. It is in adulthood that the hunger for life gives way to the appetite for a different life. It is simply not adult to ask for help except in ways that do not damage our basic self-sufficiency. In other words, the older we get, the more we're expected to become like Dickens' characters, fixed, close, uh, close to change, and more likely to collide with others than grow with them. The other way to say this is that the greatest difference between adults and children is not that adults have more, but that they can receive less. Since as adults we ask for little, we can receive little.
the conclusion to this way of thinking is that we do indeed ask to be born as the persons we are. But now we have a deeper sense of what birth might mean. It's not something that occurs to us from without, but something that has to do with the way we are from within. I cannot claim to have been born until I ask others for the possibility of life. And this in turn means that the cry for help does not depend on my birth, but my birth on the cry for help. And therefore my birth renews itself whenever I reach out anew for life. To act openly on the knowledge of absolute dependence on others is to experience rebirth, the renewing of life. Birth is not therefore to be thought of as the outcome of a physiological process, but the beginning of an uncharted journey. The Silence of God, Meditations on Prayer, Second Meditation, Section 4 of the Reading. What we can properly ask of God there's a difficulty in my first meditation on the silence of God I know that I haven't faced. Even if it is agreed that all around that we cannot speak for God, even if we all see clearly that to know God is to be God, it still happens that I'm speaking a good deal about God in these meditations. How do I know enough about God even to say that God is silent? Is it enough to argue that just because we hear nothing from God, there is a God who is saying nothing? This seems analogous to concluding that because we hear nothing on the other side of the closed door, there's not someone waiting for us to knock. Theologians have customary ways of resolving this difficulty. They say that faith precedes knowledge. It is one thing to know God is there in the silence. It's another to have faith that God is there. Virtually all the church's greatest thinkers have adopted a principle that first appears in the writing of St. Augustine, understanding follows faith. We do not believe that we are already able to understand, but attempt to understand that in which we have faith. The fact that knowledge or understanding does not come before faith means inevitably that faith entails risk. The risk entailed in faith is of a very special sort. It involves no calculation. Faith is not the activity of determining the degree of likelihood that God is, is there. As though one might decide the chances are better than 50-50 and then believing it if it seems prudent. The emphasis in faith is on the willingness to risk, not on the chances of losing your wager. Most matters in the realm of spirit are paradoxical in this regard. In worldly affairs where we calculate our risks, relying on paradox would bring us to certain ruin. We might invest money in a long-shot business venture if it also offers the possibility of a very high payoff. We might be ruined by doing so, but there's a certain amount of reason for taking such an action. It seems like a smart gamble, but there's no gambling in the spirit. One does not risk oneself spiritually in the hope of a profitable outcome. The risk is itself the outcome. And this is the paradox. If you want to save your life, you must first lose it. The issue in faith is not, then, whether there is anyone beyond the door, but whether we can drop everything to knock on it. The door will most certainly open, but only to that person who risks everything without the least concern for gain. 
The most perfect biblical image of faith is that of Abraham proceeding directly to the sacrifice of his son, though he was about to destroy something far more valuable to him than his own life. No wonder Abraham is known ever after as the father of faith. The relation of prayer to faith is vividly captured in a short scene in the Gospel of Mark. A father has brought his epileptic son to Jesus, begging Jesus to have pity on us and to help us. Jesus replied by a declaration of the paradox, all things are possible to him who believes. The father's remarkable response was to cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. The crucial term here is not belief, but help. What confirms the authenticity of the father's faith is not that he first believed and then asked, but that he asked directly from his heart. The reference to his unbelief seems to suggest that he may not even have believed that Jesus was able to do what he asked. If he had calculated the chances of getting the boy cured of his terrible affliction, he may have found that they were not all that good. In fact, the father had already pled with Jesus' disciples to heal his son, and they had tried but failed. Now, coming to Jesus himself, the father disregards the odds and asks for everything, as though his very life depended on it. Later, the disciples asked Jesus why they had not been able to heal the boy. He said simply that this kind of illness cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. These, uh, these are some of the countless examples in Christian history of persons whose lives are dramatized by their willingness to risk everything. Certainly among the most colorful are among the uh, early Irish monks who would go so far as to put out to sea in small crafts, merely to drift wherever the tides and the winds would take them. They considered themselves peregrini, pilgrims or wanderers. They were giving outward form to the spiritual act of placing themselves at God's mercy. Far from any landfall without chart or rudder, they were left with nothing but the cry of the epileptic's father, help. Of course, if their intention had been to isolate themselves physically in a way that would have given the cry of help authenticity, they would have been frauds. Their wandering was spiritually genuine only if it reflected the recognition that in their human condition they were already at sea and without any resources to save themselves. All of this illustrates the theological point that faith is greater than knowledge and that we do not need to know if anyone is beyond the door before we set down all that we carry all our burdens and treasures and knock on it. To be sure, by insisting on this, theologians make theology, theologians make theology a tentative enterprise. It's a kind of knowledge that knows it cannot count. I'm repeating the observation made in the introduction that theology is a joyful discourse among persons who have rushed the door or put to sea in their diminutive vessels. Theology succeeds when it fails that is, when the theologian's journey is not so successful that it eliminates the need for your own, but so suggestive that it invites you to set forth on your own. In this very same way, speaking of God in these meditations is a tentative speaking, a non-knowing knowing, an attempt to listen, to speak, and to listen again. The matter that now asks for comment 
is the rush to the door, the initial cry of the heart into the enormous silence, a cry that precedes all other wants and passions. The question is, what can we ask of God that we can ask only of God? In the introduction to this book, I indicated that the word praying has virtually the same meaning as begging, probably its closest synonym. To understand prayer as begging, it may be helpful to contrast it with desiring. Sometimes confused with praying because they since are both forms of asking for something. It's one thing to beg and quite another to desire. The father of the epileptic did not desire to have his son healed. He begged for healing. The most elemental difference between begging and desiring is that in begging, we ask for what we cannot live without, but have no resources of our own to obtain. We do not beg unless our lives are in jeopardy. At bottom, then all begging is a begging for life. Desire, on the other hand, is focused on an object one can quite well live without, even if it causes acute dissatisfaction. I do not desire to exist, but to exist in some other time and place, perhaps even as another person. Therefore, what I desire, I cannot beg for, because my existence is not at stake. If prayer is to be understood as begging and not merely desiring, it may seem that we are only rarely in a circumstance where prayer is appropriate. It does seem that there are very few moments in a well-organized life when we're brought to the extreme of having to beg for our existence. I've emphasized the phrase a well-organized life to draw attention to the deep habit of looking ahead in life, heading off the disasters that reduce us to begging. For myself, I have the example of the Irish monks, those holy wanderers, charming and a bit exotic, but they are an example that I hesitate to follow. Frankly, I'm a habitual chart man. I trust as little as possible to the tides and the winds. But in doing so, I deceive myself. Being preoccupied with charts is a way of forgetting that I am a frail craft indeed, and by no means a master over the histories through which I am trying to navigate. If we look behind this common deception, we find that begging is not an occasional necessity and a misfortune. It is of the very essence of what it means to be human. The truth is we can have nothing we do not ask for. Now I know this observation seems overstated and in fact seems false on the face of it. If I have something, obviously no longer, I no longer have to ask for it. And if I'm asking for something, it's clear enough that I do not yet have it. And in one very important matter, I must say that the life I have, I did not ask for. After all, who asked to be born? But I mean the statement to be taken literally in both cases. I can have material possessions only by continuing to beg for them, and I cannot be born without asking to be born. Consider first the question of material possessions. It's true in a formal sense that I cannot ask for what I already have, but on the other hand, I must ask to keep what I already have, that is to continue having it. I can continue to have only what others permit me to have. In this sense, my possessions are mine only to the degree that others agree to my ownership. 
It is true that I can lock our apartment in the city and go away for weeks at a time, certain that nothing will be missing when we return, and that this fact encourages us to believe that our possessions are indisputably ours and, and depend on no one's agreement. However, the powerful lock on the front door was installed by an expert on whose skill we must depend. There is a security system in our building and a doorman whose responsibility it is to see that no one enters our apartments and steals anything. In our daily comings and goings in the city, we depend on many others. We cannot walk the streets or drive an automobile or make a purchase or express political opinions except where others suffer us to do so. Even money itself, often thought to be an irresistible form of power, is only paper or metal and becomes money only when persons agree to use it as such. When we offer money to others for their property or labor, we receive in return not what the money forces them to do, but what they offer in exchange. That is, we must beg them to accept our money in exchange for something of theirs. The point here is that there can be no such thing as material possessions without a subtle and complicated network of societal agreements. We must all consent to an enormous number of social practices before any of us can have anything at all. What is most important here is that, unless there's a collective will to sustain these agreements, we are individually helpless. I cannot independently decide to have the kind of society that I want, but I must live in that which has already been shaped by a collective will. This is not to say that, except in rare instances, I can have no influence over my social environment, but those influences inevitably take form of a plea that my own needs to be that my own needs be respected. I must beg to be listened to. To be able to have anything that I can call my own, therefore, I must live in my society as a suppliant. All social bond involves a form of prayer. If it's true that we can have nothing that we do not ask for, it is also true that no one can give us what we do not ask for. No matter how much I might desire to give you money or some other property, if you do not accept it from me, I'm powerless to make you do so. I make this point to emphasize the thorough reciprocity of our social relations. In this connection, we can also see quite clearly how the interdependence includes non-material as well as material exchanges. I cannot be human at all unless I am listened to, unless others respond to me out of their own spontaneity. I cannot demand that someone love me or despise me, and what is more, if I do not want your love or your admiration or even your anger, there's simply no way you could give them to me. You might, of course, feel them, perhaps acutely, but insofar as they remain only feelings, they're not genuine personal exchanges. You've given me nothing, and how deeply frustrating and dissatisfying it is to express your affection or your rage at someone who does not respond to it. At any such moment, we can see how much we depend on others asking for our expressions. We cannot have what we do not beg for, and we cannot be given what we do not beg for. So far, I've discussed this principle in terms of material and non-material possessions, but earlier I stressed that begging is at the bottom of a begging for life. Can we say that we cannot have life or even be given life without begging for it? And this is the point at which we must contend with the truisms that we did not ask to be born.
In one sense, but in a very limited sense, it is true that we do not initiate the physiological process that results in our material existence. But then it's also true that while we cannot be the persons we are without our bodies, we are not the persons we are as those physical entities. The term reproduction is quite misleading here since it implies that parents produce children, duplicating precisely the means by which they were produced. This suggests, as, this suggests that as persons, we are the outcome or the result of an autonomous, an automatic process extending back indefinitely into the past. According to this way of thinking, we are who we are quite independently of the persons around us. A literary critic once said of the characters of Dickens that they were so completely conceived by him before he located them in his stories that they were incapable of inner growth or development. They did not speak with each other, he said, so much as collide with each other without ever altering the patterns of words and actions as their author assigned them. The critic did not have to add that Dickens should have known better. None of us springs as finished persons from the author's imagination. The language we speak is not scripted uh, and in advance, but must be learned from those who were speaking uh, long before we were ever conceived. Recall the earlier point that it is simply nonsensical to say that we have language all by ourselves, for that would mean it would be it would be possible to speak with ourselves, which we could no more do than steal from the left hand what we hold in the right. So too with all our social involvements. We were not born brave or funny or melancholy. Each of these terms describes the way we interact with others and makers and makes no sense when applied to to one in isolation. I cannot be brave all by myself. In other words, everything that constitute, constitutes us as persons can be found only in active and reciprocal social relations. Unless others reach out to me, unless others listen, I cannot be a person. And at the same time, I must also reach out to others. I must also be a listener myself. I cannot be a person unless the possibility is offered me by others but those others are powerless to make me a person. I must ask for what they offer, and I must beg them to listen. It is true of even the smallest infant that our love for it is utterly without effect, unless it asks to have that love of us. And that is why parenting is so enormously difficult. We're often prepared to give a great many things to a child before the child has asked for them. And what the child truly asks for we may not hear or be able to give in response. The great difference between parents and children is not that the parents have so much more to give, but the ch children have so much more to ask for. Childhood is a time of great dependence, and that is to say need, and therefore a time of begging from others. There's no more complete hunger than that of the newborn. They're asking not only for a material sustenance which they cannot obtain on their own, but they're asking for a great many forms of human touching of the very most fundamental and unconditional sort. Childhood is a state of the purest hunger for life. It's a state of being that can be comprehended as uninterrupted prayer. As children mature towards adulthood, the greatest changes that they undergo are not the possessions of more and more, but the inclination to ask for less and less. 
the very definition of adulthood is one of self-sufficiency. It is a time of life in which we're expected to provide our own sustenance and come to our own political and moral decisions and choose the future course of our own lives, all with the least possible amount of instruction or support from others. It is in adulthood that the hunger for life gives way to the appetite for a different life. It is simply not adult to ask for help except in ways that do not damage our basic self-sufficiency. In other words, the older we get, the more we're expected to become like Dickens' characters, fixed, close, uh, close to change, and more likely to collide with others than grow with them. The other way to say this is that the greatest difference between adults and children is not that adults have more, but that they can receive less. Since as adults we ask for little, we can receive little. The conclusion to this way of thinking is that we do indeed ask to be born as the persons we are, but now we have a deeper sense of what birth might mean. It's not something that occurs to us from without, but something that has to do with the way we are from within. I cannot claim to have been born until I ask others for the possibility of life, and this in turn means that the cry for help does not depend on my birth, but my birth on the cry for help. And therefore, my birth renews itself whenever I reach out anew for life. To act openly on the knowledge of absolute dependence on others is to experience rebirth, the renewing of life. Birth is not therefore to be thought of as the outcome of a physiological process, but the beginning of an uncharted journey.